0: If you're a parent, have you considered the incredible education your family would receive by traveling together all around the world? Steve and Toby Ryan took their three kids out of elementary school to follow the sun from New Zealand to Thailand, all across Europe, down to Africa, Central America, and then clear down to Argentina. By the time they returned to Salem back in Oregon, eight months of world travel gave them irreplaceable time together as a family, and the kids got more of an education than they could have ever imagined.
1: What really struck me and what I wanted the kids to see was that, really, people all over the world are just the same and that we're more alike than we are different.
0: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Stay with us as we hear how an average family of five visited 30 countries on five continents and see how you can do it, too. And for Adventure Without a Passport, we'll check in with Lonely Planet's Andy Bender in Los Angeles. He's got suggestions for exploring Southern California, where the world comes to America. We'll help you plan adventures for the whole family in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. To bring your family closer together than ever, how about packing one bag each and taking time off to see the world together? Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're hearing how a family on a teacher's salary took a year off to experience the world and how world schooling changed their lives. Later in the hour... We'll look at a part of the United States where more ethnic neighborhoods than you can ever imagine bring the world to our shores with tips on exploring Southern California. I'm Rick Steves. We've got inspiring ideas for family time in your travels today on Travel with Rick Steves. Many parents fantasize about taking their kids out of school and giving them that travel experience, taking them all around the globe, exposing them to the diverse wonders of this planet. Today, I'm joined by Steve and Toby Ryan and their daughter, Claire, who did exactly that. And they wrote a book about it called A Brilliant Teacher. Steve and Toby and Claire, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Eight months, family of five. At the time, Claire was 7th grade, Bridget 5th grade, Michael 1st grade, mom and dad. What an experience. Tell me just in a nutshell, where did you go on your itinerary? (laughs)
1: How big is your nut?
2: Well, we went to about 30 countries through five different continents. uh, Started in Australia, New Zealand, moved up into Asia, to Europe and Africa, and then into South America.
0: Family of five all the way around the world, eight months. As parents, what were your goals?
1: We really wanted the children to experience other cultures. We thought the best way to do that was to get out and travel And we've always been travelers ourselves And it was just a decision we made when we got married To just instead of ever buying anything for each other Or buying anything for the kids To always put the money away and travel And that's our gift to ourselves and to our kids
0: Wow, because a lot of parents, they just think Time to store the passport we got kids now, wait till we're empty nesters No, we we're about
1: it. the opposite As soon as Claire was old enough She was on the back of the bike and off we went
0: Oh, so Claire, you've done a little traveling
3: yeah, just a bit.
1: <laughs>
0: now, in the book, it said Claire was the biggest challenge because she was in seventh grade and wasn't that enthusiastic about leaving her friends. Is that the hey. idea?
2: Well, I think at the beginning, yeah. She had the most to lose at the time because she was mostly connected with her friends. But she was eager once we got going, though.
0: Yeah, I remember my parents dragged me to Europe when I was about seventh grade, and I was a 14-year-old over there with a bad attitude, you know. <laughs> I just uh, I, And then I realized after a couple of days, well, eh, it's really not that bad. Now, as parents setting this up, did you look at it like homeschooling?
1: Yes. They were world-schooled, is what we say. We hooked it up with their teachers, and Claire actually had a sack of books that she needed to read for her language arts class, and she read them all between Salem and Los Angeles. We couldn't afford to fly from PDX, so part of our deal was to drive the car to Los Angeles, leave it there, and sell it, and then we took off from there. And so by the time we got to L.A., she would basically read all the books she needed for that class because she's a voracious reader. And then they stayed in touch with all their teachers and were writing papers, and Steve would do the math, I'd do the English, and they were constantly converting every time we went to a different country. This was before euros, so they were converting the money each time we went to another country, how much is it, a dollar here? And They stayed in touch with all their classes, and their classes were charting their progress around the world on maps in their classrooms.
0: Oh, so it was more than an education just for your three kids. Their classmates were following their progress as well. Exactly. Well, that's great. Now, is world schooling, is that your term or is that... Is that...
1: That's my term, yeah. <laughs> People say, so did you homeschool? So, no, we didn't have a home. We were world schooling.
0: Did the public schools endorse this and provide guidelines to make this happen without having to repeat a year of school?
1: Yes, they are all been public educated their whole lives, and they were very open to that. So the parents teachers
0: were great. The parents teachers were, were very so excited
1: about it. Yeah. They thought it was fabulous.
0: Generally, as long as the parents are responsible and going to take the teaching initiative and can scrape together the money, it is an option for anybody within the um, parameters of public schooling to take your kids out for a year uh, and have this rich educational world schooling experience.
1: At least it was for us at the time we did it. I can't vouch for what the
0: right. climate
3: may be like now. Probably yeah. helps you're both teachers. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, but, but Claire, you read your assigned reading before you even left the country.
3: Yeah, well, I read a lot. I used to get in trouble for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, bad girl.
3: <laughs> we well, had to take away her library card her freshman year in high
1: school because she spent too much time reading.
0: Wow, that's a nice problem to have <laughs> with a <with> kid. <laughs> you know, my son just went to Rome for a semester, and, you know, he admitted the classroom schooling was was really a little bit of a a sham almost, but the real education was actually traveling and being there. I would imagine after eight months, the education your kids got was was functioning on the road and being exposed to all these different lifestyles.
2: Part of it, from our perspective, was how it was going to impact them once they came back. And, you know, you don't know whether they're going to be in in therapy, you know, 20 years from that experience or uh, whether they'd have something that they remember fondly and, one of the neat things that happened was over the course of the last couple of years after we got back is that their school projects would start to reflect some of their experiences that they had uh, around the world. So it was really neat to see it kind of come out in that way, their writing and pictures that they drew and things like that for their schoolwork in future
0: years. Okay, that's, that's the dad's report, Claire, as the actual student four years later. <laughs> um, is that wishful thinking on your dad's part, or are you actually a different person having spent eight months uh, world schooling?
3: Oh, definitely different. I guess I kind of had a different area to tap as opposed to most kids flying for college because I was able to say, well, I've been to Africa. And when I was there, I got to see this and this and this. And whenever they ask you, you know, like world experience or things that have changed your life, I was able to say something that I'm pretty sure most kids in the States wouldn't be able to talk about.
0: Having been away on the road for eight months, uh, I, I know that the majority of the uh, value has been positive. What were the downsides, Claire?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually went to a charter school for three years in middle school. And the first year for sixth grade, I had to meet everybody like all over again. So I had to start all over and then leaving in the middle of that, um, I guess I kind of missed out on a lot of it, but I'm still really close with a majority of the people I met there, and we still hang out. And, and...
0: So the biggest um, downside for you was the just social, being detached from your friends when they're doing so much fun stuff back at home?
3: Yeah, and coming back, you have a lot of things that you can't necessarily relate to with other 14-year-old kids because they didn't exactly grow up the way you did. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I remember that when I was a kid and went to Europe, I came back and I didn't know any of the the songs that were like hits at, oh. at the time and it was so strange to come back and oh. I felt really disjointed it's probably not that big a deal these days but uh, you do have that readjustment period when you come back mom and dad did you uh, have a preparation sort of plan do you have a bunch of movies and reading before the trip that you wanted the kids to tune into
1: well we watched your show all the time oh
0: of course yeah along <laughs> and, with that well yeah
1: and it was a lot of asking them, so where would you like to go in the world and what would you like to do when you get there? And we asked each of them to make a kind of a wish list to see if they would have things. that Michael didn't want to go at all. He was just constantly, I don't want to go. But he was only six years old. He turned seven in New Zealand. So he didn't understand the whole concept. So we just kind of had to keep holding him and letting him cry. But Claire and Bridget had been studying different cultures and different countries and different times of history. I had a set thing. I really wanted them to experience Dachau and start seeing some of the Holocaust and we really questioned, should we do Dachau or not? But I thought it was important that they do it. And we said, well, let's see how they handle it. And then we went to Auschwitz, which was a huge difference between that education that they got this summer and the education that they got at Dachau. So, and Bergenau. Oh, and Bergenau. How, how yeah. was that
0: different, seeing two different concentration camps because of their age uh, and their ability to get their mind both. around it? Both,
1: yes, because of their age. I'm hoping that they're connecting. Actually, I think that they have. What they've been seeing and hearing In the world since we left, and Dachau has been very whitewashed and cleaned up and is very nice. And between the time that I went first in college and we went again as a family, the town of Dachau is right now up there's people living right near there. And Auschwitz, they have not whitewashed it. It's exactly as it was when it opened in 1947, and it's just miles and miles and miles of awful history. And we were walking in Birkenau, where there's just seemingly endless rows of where the barracks were. The kids started to say, where in the world that is still going on? But where we have not learned our lesson. And that was very interesting for me that they were connecting that and they were starting to talk about where there's genocide going on today.
0: Well, that's the value of this sort of world schooling. Claire, did you feel like your input to the itinerary was Um, actual and you really had an input or was it just sort of a a sham to keep you pacified? (laughs) Uh,
3: No, I definitely got my input and kind of got kicked in the butt for one of my choices, but... But Don't Um. you think that's
0: important? As a parent, (laughs) we traveled with our kids every year. The kids knew if we were just sort of playing games with them when they were respected enough to have input into the itinerary and were actually doing things the kids wanted to do. Suddenly they owned part of the itinerary and I felt it really went a lot better.
3: Yeah, my dad didn't learn that so well. <laughs> well, it was, it was
2: a, an educational process for all of us, I think, over the, the course of the time we traveled. And so I think one thing we learned was that uh, we needed to spend a lot more time in, with zip lines and swings <laughs> and maybe less time in big, uh, you know, museums, beautiful churches
1: castles. and museums. <laughs> there was a mutiny yeah. on the stairs of some famous, where were we? I don't know what country we were in. And he's going, oh, we're going to go. And the kids just sat down and just we're not going anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's enough and I said, you know, they don't have to see everything in the world.
0: Parents have this thing about museums, don't they,
3: Claire? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> they do.
0: <laughs> okay, let me talk just about the general nitty-gritty of the trip. First of all, did you have one of those um, airplane tickets around the world with unlimited stopovers, or how did you do all the connecting?
2: Well, at first, I looked into consolidators and putting together tickets like that and uh, trying to kind of do it on my own through the Internet, and... Ultimately, we found out to use uh, the Star Alliance, where you have 39,000 miles to spend, essentially. And so I I spent uh, weeks and months uh, figuring out exactly how many miles we could use to get to what places.
0: So Star Alliance is uh, five or six major airlines put together, right? That gives you all those selections. Right. That's a great sort of flexibility. So you basically hopped and skipped and jumped all around the globe, not necessarily in a straight line either. You were going all over the place. (laughs) That's I I was following your route and I thought, (laughs) whoa, I feel like it's a ping pong table here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it worked because you had that thirty nine thousand miles to spend and apparently that was economic. And then you stayed mostly in hostels, is that what I understand? Yes. Why?
1: That's what we could afford. They're awesome. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, that, so that's well, interesting. Two, Claire no, says two, awesome no, and, and no, mom and dad are. say that was affordable. Well, it's no, it's so it, true, isn't it? The
1: Two reasons. Because you really get to meet real people doing that. And on teachers' salaries, that's what we could afford and that's how we had always traveled. Mm-hmm. I, I just think you just get a much more real experience of the actual places where you're staying and other travelers the friendships you make, the stories you get to exchange. It's just fabulous. The kids loved hanging out.
0: Whether you're on a budget or not, hostling if you're traveling with a family, is a great way to go for a lot of good reasons. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Steve and Toby Ryan and their daughter Claire. We're talking about an eight-month trip the family of five took all around the world, and they wrote a book to tell of their adventures called A Brilliant Teacher. Uh, I've searched for you I traveled on when hope was gone
4: To keep a rendezvous
0: Up next, we'll compare notes with Dave Besch in Arizona, who also took his family of five around the world as an educational and family-bonding adventure. And we'll continue with Steve, Toby, and Claire Ryan and their story of taking a year off from school to experience the world as a family. Steve's. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're talking about skipping out of school like big time. Lose eight months of schooling and call it world schooling and actually come home smarter for it. Steve and Toby Rhine took their three kids around the world for eight months on a teacher's salary. Their self-published book documents their experience. It's called A Brilliant Teacher. They're joining us from the radio studios at Oregon State University, where their daughter, Claire, is now a sophomore. We'll continue with the Rhine family in just a moment. Right now, on the phone, Dave Besch in Mesa, Arizona, tells us how he took his family on a similar adventure. Dave, thanks for calling.
5: Oh, my pleasure.
0: Now, Dave, um, tell us what your family did for your world schooling.
5: Well, we have three children, and when we left, they were age 7, 9, and 13. I was listening to Steve and Toby and just nodding my head because we were so pleasantly pleased with what the public school administrators thought of our trip. This one fellow about wanted to jump in the van and go with us. They were very supportive. Our schooling part of it was a little bit less formal. We just brought a math book and a pencil. Then we read different pieces of literature based on where we were. When we were in London and Paris, we read A Tale of Two Cities, and when we were in Italy, I read Julius Caesar to my oldest. But the math and journaling Was something that we kept up with throughout the year. We had the kids' journal on a website so they would frequently get emails. And like Claire, my middle son was adopted by a class at his school and they would move his picture around the world map based on where he was and would frequently send him emails.
0: But I would think just going down to breakfast and catching the subway and getting on a canoe somewhere and hearing the call to prayer, all these sort of things would be hugely. Rewarding from an educational point of view and on top of just doing your reading that the teachers send away from home Did you parents find that
5: all the time when we would get into a subway? We would make the kids pick out which direction we were going and not just look for their stop But look for the end of the line stop so that they could figure out how to do that that way I remember sitting in a a hotel in Istanbul and this fella came up and and was shaking his head And he said you won't believe it, but there's like a nine-year-old down there talking about the weakness of the dollar and uh, I said, did he have a red shirt on? He said, yeah. I said, that's, that's mine.
0: <laughs> that's quite impressive from a parenting point of view to know that your kids can do that. Anne and I, would we took our kids out every May uh, until well into their schooling, and teachers always supported that because I think teachers are thankful that the kids are going to get that exposure. And we'd go to pubs in Ireland, and our kids would be making friends over at the pool table while we're having a drink over here, and it was just like a wonderful opportunity for these kids to realize that the world is not all like their friends down the street. Uh, Dave, did you travel in hostels or stay in hotels with your family of five?
5: We did a little bit of both, and we also did a fair number of homestays, some of which worked out well, some of which
0: didn't. How would one not work out well?
5: When you go to a homestay, you assume that the people that you're staying with have an interest in their community and showing you the good side of it. But there's a financial side to homestays, too, and some people are simply in it for the money and aren't uh, terribly helpful. And we had a hmm. an experience like that in Argentina, unfortunately.
0: Now, your trip took you all around the world also?
5: It did, yeah. We were gone for 12 months, and like Stephen Toby, we drove a car and then dropped it off and left from the—it sounded like they left from L.A. We left from the East Coast and then went to England and then Tanzania and then back through Europe and to India, Thailand,
0: Incredible Japan. experience for your kids. Wow.
5: Yeah.
0: Now, Stephen, Toby, I read in your book that you dropped in on friends as a little break from the grind of traveling.
1: Yeah, Tell us about that. I think that's how how we survived. I think how the kids were able to survive is because of the Star Alliance, we had to go to Germany a lot. We have a friend in Germany, and my best friend from college is in England. So it seemed like every few months we were back in England so the kids could hear English again and be back with the Fife family and go, okay, now we have to go again. And it was just a respite.
0: From your point of view, Stephen Toby, what were the real triumphs as parents in this whole thing? What were you so thankful for that you had exposed your kids to?
2: One of my goals was just to be together as a family because, you know, when you're in your routines, you're kind of bumping around and taking kids from here to there and don't really have uh, quality time to spend with each other. And some of my favorite times were just sitting on trains and, mm. and enjoying our kids and our family together. And you know, for me, that was a goal achieved, was just being able to spend time together and not have those kind of distractions.
0: And those are souvenirs for the rest of your life. Dave, as far as your family goes and your parenting, what were the uh, major accomplishments that you saw in your one year on the road with your three kids?
5: Oh, well, we saw our family come together. It was just incredible. When we left, there was a lot of fighting over who was going to get what seat in the car and the, and the usual nonsensical stuff. And by the time we returned, that, that had gone away and was replaced by uh, closeness, that we hadn't had before, and we also had certain real teachable moments. We were in Canberra when the Australian government uh, apologized to the aboriginals for the stolen generation. It was We felt like a witness to history. We, we watched the speech and had the kids write about what they thought about it, and so there were just some times that were so special and so unforgettable. And, and the stories that we have, I, I think is what you were, were alluding to, Rick, that they're ours to share. We talk about you know when my son got shocked in Thailand or my daughter broke her leg, and while those are not uh, terribly funny, there's humor that evolves around them, and, and they sort of develop a life of their own.
0: They're part of your family story for the rest of your time together. Yes. Claire, when you were traveling, were there any things that, in retrospect, you wished your parents would have shielded you from? Was there anything that kind of creeped you out, or grossed you out, or scarred you?
3: Well. Definitely scarred, but. um, (laughs) Thanks, Claire. Well, it's true, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that's a huge issue. Like just in the states itself, we're shielding people from things that we shouldn't be shielded from. So what did
0: what did you not be shielded from that a lot of parents might have shielded you from?
3: Well, not just a lot of parents, but the government. I don't know, just the amount of poverty in different areas how much our media is controlled by certain groups. I mean, we were gone during 9-11, so I was able to see a lot of how the rest of the world saw what was going on. And, I don't know, but trying to get that point of view across to people here in the States, they don't believe it because they weren't able to see the things that I was able to see. Well, it's
0: interesting, isn't it, to have been overseas and to come home and realize you just shake your heads and think, My friends will never understand this because they can't see it from that perspective. You have to have been there almost.
3: Oh, definitely. My friends, we don't really talk about the fact that I've gone around the world and the things that I've seen just because I don't think they're mature enough. I don't think they're ready enough to see that. And, you know, when they are, then I'll definitely be willing to talk to them about it and tell them what went on. But until then, I'll just... Keep it to myself and just keep on (laughs) writing.
0: Wow. You know, I'm the same way about India. To me, India is a country that is so frustrating to come home and talk to people about. It's an interesting thing to hear you say that. The personal impact of this kind of education is just such a valuable thing. Uh, Talking to the parents now, were there any things that you parents had to worry about that you had to make a point to protect your kids from that you censored just to be good parents?
5: From my point of view, I'm a physician, and one of the opportunities that we had was to do some medical missionary work in Tanzania. And my wife and I thought about it for a long time. If you're going to really get into a mission hospital and really do mission work, you're going to see a lot of death. Especially with our youngest, we felt like we had to keep that from her. Our two oldest ones, we would have been okay with them learning that that's the way the world is, but we Mm -hmm. didn't feel with a seven year old daughter that was something that that we wanted to take on, and that was a very difficult decision to not do that.
1: We did avoid the red light district in Amsterdam.
0: Well, that's an interesting uh, angle, too. I remember Ann and I were in a hotel where they just had pornography on the TV in the room, and it wasn't a paid channel or anything. It's just they don't care about that in Austria, you know. And we both couldn't believe the hotelier would allow this, and Mm. we had to physically take the TV out of the room. So there's those kind of different sensibilities from country to country, whether it's violence or sex or the gripping poverty. That a parent has to be mindful of as they take especially younger kids around. Yeah,
2: I think also uh, just fear. I think that there were times when uh, Toby and I were worried. <laughs> you know, we didn't know exactly where we were going next, or maybe the room that we were planning on didn't quite work out. And a lot so of guns. Uh, we
1: saw lots of guns. Yeah,
2: there were a lot of guns in Young Egypt kids and different <laughs> with countries. Guns. Um, so there there was a lot of scary moments, and it always worked out okay. But you have that initial, uh, you know, hesitation and and worry that you don't want to allow the kids to feel that same kind of fear. Claire, you got an honest look at the world,
0: didn't you?
3: Oh, definitely. And, I don't know, too bad more people can't do that. I'm sure the states would be different. It's kind of sad that you have to wait until you get into college to be able to see, like, even a small portion of what I was able to see.
0: There's nothing like first-hand personal experience in a country with a lot of guns or a lot of poverty or a lot of suffering on the streets or a lot of fear. Dave, when you were over there, did you give your kids certain responsibilities just to let them learn from the school of hard knocks?
5: Yeah, we did. We um, would sometimes have them plan the day, and sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't. They would plan what we did. Our, Our oldest, Joe, he actually picked a country. We had no intention of going to Japan when we left the States, but... He read about it and decided he really wanted to go there, and so he planned our route while we were there. Wow. Yeah, and he did a good job. We, we were very proud of him. That was on the sort of the bigger picture, the smaller picture day-to-day things. They had to be responsible for packing their own suitcases. You know, we only had one suitcase apiece. We had these wonderful suitcases that were good enough to hold school books and three changes of clothes for each of us and everything else we needed. But if they left something behind, they had to pay for it from their own money. They were allowed to earn money on the trip based on doing certain chores.
0: That's an interesting thing from a parenting point of view, is to give the kids the responsibility of money. And uh, Anne and I always thought, well, we're on vacation, so we get a little extra allowance. We'll give the kids a little extra allowance. But it came with certain strings attached, uh, such as uh, writing a journal. Stephen, Toby, did your kids write journals?
1: They did. I think Claire did religiously, so did Bridget. And I kept the most copious notes of the entire trip, which is what the book came from. I hadn't intended to do that, but we were also sending once a month we would or whenever we could we would send an email back to the states and then suddenly people were forwarding our email to people yeah. we didn't know we were getting responses back from huh. strangers saying oh my gosh this is amazing so I your book happened
0: accidentally really then yes it did so we're talking with uh, Steve and Toby Ryan and their daughter Claire and they wrote a book called A Brilliant Teacher and we're joined by Dave Besh from Arizona who took his three kids around the world as well on a one year trip. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Uh, Claire, did you feel like you were more extroverted after your trip? Did that have any effect on your comfort level with people you don't know?
3: I'm a decent actress, so I <laughs> keep a lot of stuff inside, but depending on you know who you're around and the people you're with and the way that they are, you act different ways, and I'm sure that's the case for just humanity in general. But, I don't know, yeah, I keep a lot of things internal but i can be extremely extroverted depending on who i'm around
2: it's actually one of our favorite memories was watching our kids interact with people on the trains and uh, (laughs) and sitting in different places and the kids would perform little skits or puppet shows or something like that so they definitely overcame those initial fears and would uh, connect all over the place
1: i guess we were in thailand and he was just kind of checking in with the kids and saying so how did you put it to michael you said something about what have is there something that you're missing, and or what do you like or not like? And he said that he doesn't like having to make so many friends and have to leave them all the time.
0: Oh, that's a beautiful thought. It was
1: beautiful from a six-year-old saying it. that. Wow. Because everywhere we went, the kids connected with people, total strangers. We have friends that we met on the bus. They had us come and stay with them for days, and we're still in touch with that family. The serendipitous moments that turn into friendships, and our kids can say they have friends all over the world.
0: You made global citizens out of your children. We did. This is so fun to talk to two different families about this experience. What wonderful parenting! Dave Besch from Arizona, thanks so much for joining us, and continued happy travels with your family.
5: Thank you, my pleasure.
0: And Stephen Toby, when you think about all of the stops you had, what do you think had the most powerful impact on your kids? Which country?
2: One of the things that was Dave was was talking about this as well was to be able to give back and not just kind of take from our whole trip and so we we spent three weeks in Peru with a friend of a friend who's a priest in this very poor village and so the time that we spent there learning about poverty kinda through um, the the priest's eyes and then through Mm. the community's eyes and then ultimately we developed great relationships with the people in that community and and so much of the time we have that mentality of us kinda giving and, uh, and really it was a relationship, and then we got a lot out of that experience as well, so I, I think that was very profound, for me at least.
0: All of you parents have a very um, strong interest in connecting your children with humanity. I just think that's such an inspiration. Claire, if you think back to your time in Chiang Mai in northern Thailand, just very quickly, what images come to mind when you think about Chiang Mai and the hill tribes up in the north of Thailand?
6: Well,
3: plastic surgery is a huge thing here in the United States. One of the things that I just thought was hilarious is that women over here will pay exorbitant amount of money to have plastic surgery to make their noses smaller. But over there, these women will just save up money so that they can have their noses bigger, which is just the weirdest thing ever to me. And they actually make fun of us for it. Hmm. They have um, these bamboo cups that are cut at this really interesting angle because your nose is so big they don't want your nose getting in your cup or something like that. It's <laughs> weird. So
0: your travels really showed you that if somebody has a inferiority complex, it might just be a, a social dictate from your little corner of the world and it, you could flip-flop it if you were living somewhere else.
3: Oh, it definitely is. I wish we'd been able to go to the Samoa
0: thing. I, yeah. I remember when I was in Japan, everybody was wanting light skin and big noses because yeah. they all yeah. have little noses and dark skin. I'm, I'm, mm, a, I'm a knockout gosh. in Tokyo, you see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I enjoyed uh, in your book that you all contributed apparently to all the various toilets around the world. Was, <laughs> was that a children's writing assignment?
1: We had that little uh, <laughs> ranking system of, you know, one star if something actually exists and two stars if it's open and three stars if you don't have to pay to go in it and four stars if you don't fall through <laughs> into the, the fecal matter below. <laughs> toilets was a constant conversation because it's in constant need and there are times when you there's just nothing around. And Big uh, topic
2: for middle school and yeah. elementary kids Well, kids that too, right so. <laughs> there's going
0: to sell a lot of copies of your book, A Brilliant Teacher, to get a whole family's report on toilets around the world. <laughs> Even more fundamental than that, I think you parents made a big investment in time and money to show your kids the world and uh, to teach that the world is a brilliant teacher to, to illustrate that. Even I, I remember you writing about Niagara Falls as a kitchen faucet. Yes. <laughs> Tell me where that came from.
2: One of the people that we visited was uh, my cousin uh, Heather who was in the Peace Corps in Paraguay. So we went together with her to uh Iwaxu Falls.
3: Falls to iwasu
2: Yeah. It just was massive. Uh, we, we'd saw it on the movie The Mission many years ago and thought, oh, that would be a neat place to go. So we went there and it's you know 10 times the size of Niagara Falls and that was a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt.
1: It's in three countries
2: It's wow. pretty big. Yeah, a yeah.
1: lot of the places we went were just things that we'd seen in <laughs> posters over the years or something you'd seen from a clip of a movie and so it was, you know where if you want to go anywhere where do you want to go I'm making that wish list. but what really struck me, and what I wanted the kids to see was that really people all over the world are just the same and that we're more alike than we are different and I really wanted them to take that away and I think that they have.
0: So from a parenting point of view and an educational point of view, you'd consider it a success?
3: I think so. Time and money well the spent? Kids would say so. I think, I think <laughs> it has been.
0: Claire, are you done traveling now?
3: No, actually. I'm trying to get the money together so I can go volunteer in Baylow, um, Cameroon. I'm hoping to go teach English and American Sign Language over there to um, a couple of schools.
0: Good for you. Well, Steve and Toby Ryan and uh, daughter Claire, you're an inspiration to a lot of families listening. Your book, A Brilliant Teacher, is a, a great manual for people who want to learn from your experience and do a little world schooling. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks Thank for you, having Rick.
0: us. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're learning how the world can be a beautiful playground. Happy travel, Stralia. Next on Travel with Rick Steves, we're taking suggestions for getting a taste of the world in one domestic location, sunny Southern California. Lonely Planet author Andy Bender tells us about his home in L.A., where there's more ethnic variety than you probably ever imagined you could find in a single region. Share your suggestions at 877-333-RICK or by email. It's radio at ricksteves.com. It's Travel with Rick Steves. If you have a reason to travel around the United States, there's a good chance you're going to end up in Los Angeles or San Diego or Southern California. Those great cities have plenty to offer, but there's also some exciting side trips. I've invited today Andrew Bender, author of the Lonely Planet Guide to Los Angeles and Southern California, to join us and talk about some of the, the highlights for travelers who want to have a more interesting visit to Southern California. Andrew, thanks for joining us.
7: Rick, it's great to be with you.
0: I think Los Angeles, for one thing, is a city of many different dimensions. And uh, people go there and see the predictable things. But there are a lot of layers to Los Angeles that are probably overlooked. In your book, you mentioned that there's actually more Mexicans in Los Angeles than in any other city other than Mexico City. Is that right?
7: That's correct. And more Hondurans than in any city in Honduras, more Salvadorans than any city in Salvador. We're called the 77th province of Thailand. We have about 140 different nationalities in L.A. County alone.
0: Wow. So a traveler going to Los Angeles who wants to appreciate the many ethnicities of that city, what, what are some of the um, uh, special insights you could give in that regard?
7: You know, what's great about L.A. is that there are all these areas that are just massive and you can drive for blocks and blocks, and in some case miles and miles, and still be in a, a particular ethnic neighborhood. You go to New York, you go to San Francisco, which are wonderful, uh, and the Chinatown is several blocks long and you're done. Uh, we have Chinatown in L.A. In fact, we have three Chinatowns in L.A., we also have a korea town that's got a, a 900 restaurants all by itself. We have a little armenia, little ethiopia, filipino uh, town, i just filipino saw filipino town, town. and there are Absolutely. even exits on the freeways, aren't they? Yes, there are. Right. They have the byzantine greek quarter as wow. well.
0: One of my treats, I love mexican food, but to get mexican food out of a cart or out of a trailer right on the street, I thought was just wonderful. Is that something that people can uh, plan on?
7: Absolutely. You can go uh, to the taco trucks. They pretty much turn up on any corner. If you go to any civic event, there's usually somebody out there frying sausages and bacon, which I have to admit is a guilty pleasure. Uh-huh. Churros, those Mexican donuts, the long Mexican donuts are just wonderful. Uh, boy, it, it's, it's hard to even know where to begin with that.
0: Now, in some cases in Europe, you see somebody selling hot dogs in a park and it's famously bad. Is the uh, street food, the Mexican food in Los Angeles, something you got to watch out for? Or is that uh, really for the locals and uh, would be uh, considered uh, good quality and safe?
7: You know, you've got lots of people eating it all the time. I don't think it's going to be too big an issue. L.A. has a very good system of rating when it comes to restaurants. And I'll be frank and tell you that I don't know if there is a rating system for the carts, <laughs> but I've never heard of people getting... I just too thought many problems it was
0: worthwhile. so tasty, so cheap, and, and such a fun sort of uh, chance to sample that Mexican culture in the city. Something else impressed me was the incredible Getty Center. I've been to a lot of museums in Europe and tend to not appreciate the great museums in America. I swear the Getty Center was... The architecture was as good as anything I've seen in a museum in Europe, and the collection was outstanding as well.
7: Yeah, the Getty Center's been opened up on what's called the Sepulveda Pass, and you can stand up on the Getty Center which is several hundred feet uh, above sea level, and look down over the entire L.A. Basin. The architecture is by Richard Meyer, and the garden itself is really noteworthy. It's by Robert Irwin, another famed artist. And then the collections uh, rotate from time to time, but there's a permanent collection which includes a lot of European masterworks, furniture, silver, uh, all of that, and there's some nice kids' programs as well.
0: We got Gerald on the phone in Wenatchee, Washington. Hi, Gerald, thanks for your call.
7: You bet. You bet. My question was, uh,
4: just to remind people that there are other ways to get to L.A. beside L.A.X., we recently took the train from Seattle to L.A. on the Starlight Limited and had a delightful trip. As you know, train travel in Europe is a piece of cake, and we always enjoy traveling that way. We had a night it wasn't as interesting as one of your overnight train trips were in a compartment with six people but in a roomette we were perfectly comfortable and it was just a very enjoyable trip.
0: What was delightful about it in in particular, Gerald?
4: Uh, The scenery. The trip down the coast is very relaxing.
0: So you're enjoying Uh, the same views of Highway 101 but without having to do the driving essentially?
4: Exactly. Especially coming back up the coast from LA back to Seattle you're coming along the coast a long way through California and it was just overall a very delightful trip.
0: I just dropped into the train station in Los Angeles and was looking at the schedules, and it was, it was i got to say, it was quite intriguing, the thought that you could just hop on a train there and enjoy the entire California coastline.
7: Yeah, if I may that say, right. I, I think it's wonderful that you're taking the train and enjoying the scenery. And if I can add also, there's been a lot of movement towards uh, public transportation in L.A. I know this is the city that really defined car culture as we know it. But uh, in the last several years, the train system here has really developed beautifully. There's a subway that can take you from downtown L.A., so right near Union Station where you visited, Rick, all the way to Hollywood. So you can go to, you know, Hollywood Boulevard and see the stars and the handprints at the Chinese Theater. You can then continue on all the way to Universal Studios and spend the day there. And then you can even go to North Hollywood, which is this up-and-coming district with lots of stage theaters where you can spend the evening have a nice dinner, and then come back to your hotel in downtown L.A. or Hollywood and have a really good day without ever taking a car. It only costs $5 for a day pass.
0: Wow. Gerald, did you use the public transit when you got off the train at Union Station?
4: Uh, we really did not. We you know, hit the beaches, went up to the Getty Center, which was an outstanding uh, place to visit, and uh, spent the rest of our time at USC with the grandson and watched the Huskies get trounced by the Trojans.
0: You know, any time you go to a USC game, you usually watch your your team get trounced, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. We did that for Notre Dame. Tell me more about your experience at the Getty Center. Were you impressed by that place?
4: Very impressed. It was a beautiful day, beautiful scenery. The garden complex is just spectacular. We enjoyed the exhibits, uh, visited all the exhibits.
0: And it's more than just the exhibits, isn't it? You really want to take advantage of those audiophones and appreciate the architecture and the garden, and uh, it's just beautifully designed.
4: It is. It's a beautiful design. It
0: really is. Gerald, thanks for your call. You bet. I'm speaking with Andrew Bender. He's the Lonely Planet author to the new Los Angeles and Southern California guidebook. Andrew, when we're thinking about going to Los Angeles, you know, you just can't avoid the famous people and the celebrities, shopping and so on. What's your advice uh, for having your fun in that regard?
7: Be cool. If you see a celebrity, it's quite (laughs) likely that you will. Don't make a big deal out of it, you know, because here it's sort of every day. You see these people. They're just your neighbors. They're your friends. I probably have celebrities living right by me, and I don't even know it.
0: If you want to camp out, are there places that you are much, much more likely to see somebody you know from TV or movies?
7: Well, you know, there are some shopping districts where celebrities are known to frequent. There's an area of Robertson Boulevard in West Hollywood. If you look for a restaurant called The Ivy, there's a lot of little shops in and around there. Also, Montana Avenue in the city of Santa Monica is known for its very upscale shopping, and there are a lot of sort of West L.A. matrons and Hollywood uh, celebrities who find themselves there. And then, of course, there's Malibu, where you're just as likely to run into Cher or Barbra Streisand at the mm. supermarket as you are to run into the guy who drives the bus.
0: And if you'd rather uh, commune with the god instead of gods and goddesses of the screen, there's some famous worship opportunities. I, I was very impressed by just going to church at the Cathedral of Our Lady the Angels.
7: Absolutely. It is the new cathedral for the Los Angeles area. It's quite spectacular.
0: According to your book, it's 2002. That is a remarkable church and a great chance just to sort of feel the pulse of the community there.
7: The church itself is unlike any other church you've probably seen. It's proportioned like a Spanish cathedral and that there's a big plaza out front, and it's sort of enclosed from all three sides around that. And then the church itself is very contemporary. It's made out of port-and-place concrete, and it's sort of uh, sand-colored. And it looks kind of imposing from the outside, but you walk in and it's this vast open space that curves around. You've got these wonderful tapestries by a Santa Barbara artist. The tapestries depict the saints, but the saints are of all over the world. So you've got saints from Korea, you've got saints from Mexico, you've got saints from the Bible as are written. And then you've got saints wearing sneakers who are perhaps you or your kids who might become saints one day.
0: That was something I remembered from my visit. It was just a a fascinating look that I think mirrored all the stuff that's going on in Los Angeles, the Cathedral of Our Lady. That's just essentially across the street from that wonderful Disney Concert Hall.
7: Yeah, the Walt Disney Concert Hall is part of the Music Center of Los Angeles County, or it's just adjacent to it. The Music Center includes three different theaters. There's the Amundsen Theater, which runs like Broadway uh, stage shows. There's the Mark Taper Forum, which is a theater in the round. It's very famous for its... Groundbreaking productions, Angels in America, for example, got its start there. And then there's the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, which is where the uh, L.A. opera performs. The Walt Disney Concert Hall is now home to the L.A. Philharmonic. The Phil is getting a lot of attention right now because there's a new young director who's named Gustavo Dudamel, uh, who is from Venezuela, and you'll recognize him by his incredible shock of curls.
0: And any time of day, you can drop in and just really be wowed by the architecture. That's one of the great Absolutely. buildings ever Absolutely.
7: It's one of Frank Gehry's great buildings, and you can climb all over it in the middle of the day, or you can oh, take a tour that takes you through the inside.
0: So fun with your camera. Mm. We've got Annette on the phone from Milford, New Hampshire. Annette, thanks for your call.
8: Hi. Um, as a native Californian, I just had to let you know that I was a tour guide at Warner Brothers for two summer seasons.
0: Wow. How was that?
8: I loved it. I had a great time and ended up working on a television show for six seasons after that, so it was even more fun. But um, I had to let everyone know that it is a great tour. It consists of 110 acres. The difference between Warner Brothers and Universal is that Warner Brothers has a lot more on-set time that you can go behind the scenes um, into sound stages, props. Um, scenic arts things like that where you cannot when you're at Universal it's a whole different tour
0: so let's see Annette you're a former employee of Warner Brothers and okay. that's your take let me make sure that Andrew gets to Wayne because Andrew's job as a guidebook writer is to go to the similar things and recognize huh? people have to choose one or the other Andrew how would you say people divide their uh, limited time if they have to choose one or the other what are the pros and cons
7: Depends on what you're looking for. I think you're quite right. Um, and that's hit it on the head in that with Warner Brothers, it's a real studio tour. You go inside the prop shops, the costume shops. You get to see where the sets get built, all of this. Universal gives you more of a theme park experience. The, the Warner Brothers tour is, if I'm remembering correctly, about two hours long, very intensive. And there's an age limit. You can't go in unless you're of a certain age. Uh, I think the what is the minimum age requirement? About eight years old or something. Uh, but uh, Universal is a theme park that's meant for all ages. There are lots and lots of rides. There are other attractions, so if you want to get an education in movies, you can do that for a little while, and then you can go ride roller coasters that are also themed around movies, which are lots and lots of fun. So Universal is more of
0: a like a amusement park, whereas Warner Brothers is more of a serious education about movie making.
4: Yes.
8: Exactly, and if I can just point out, there is an amazing museum on the studio lot as well, which on um, the second floor right now has many of the, um, the props from the different
7: Harry Potter movies. Wow. I actually got to see that exhibit, it's wonderful. <laughs> hey, you get uh, to stand underneath the sorting hat and you, the sorting yeah. hat will tell you if you're in <laughs> Gryffindor or, or Slytherin or whatever.
0: So Annette, you know uh, Los Angeles pretty well. Thank Everybody, you. Everybody's been to Disneyland, I would imagine, uh, apart yeah. from Warner Brothers and Universal Studios, what would you think are the top two or three family destinations that people would want to seriously consider?
8: I think Disneyland for sure, and then um, I did hear you mention uh, the zoo down in San Diego. That would be another destination, and then also, of course, the different beaches in the area. Santa Monica is really nice to walk around. There's also one more shopping center called The Grove, which has a lot to see there as
7: well. Um,
0: Now, about 40 years ago, I went to Knott's Berry Farm, and I loved it. uh, Is that still in business?
7: This is also a nice experience. It's, it's, again, more targeted toward little kids. Their mascot is sort of the Peanuts Gang. Yeah. Uh, one fun thing to do if you're down in LA in October is they have the Halloween haunt every year at Knott's Berry Farm okay. where people jump out and scare you, and they have mm-hmm. spiders jumping down from trees, and that's really fun as well. Great.
8: The town of Calico, is that still there, the ghost town?
7: You know, I don't know about that. I'm sorry. I, I remember think, Calico, I think yeah. It still is. Yeah.
0: All right, Annette, thanks for your call.
8: Thank you so much. All
0: right. Bye now. Thanks. Bye bye. Speaking with Andrew Bender, he's the author of The Lonely Planet Guide to Los Angeles and Southern California. Andrew, uh, Annette mentioned, and uh, I've enjoyed just in Santa Monica. If you're in Los Angeles, it's so accessible. You've got that classic pier there. I think a fun thing to do in Santa Monica is you can just rent a bike or some of those crazy kind of bikes and, and just enjoy the coast.
7: There's a bike path that goes all the way from Pacific Palisades, which is north of Santa Monica, all the way down to the beach cities of Hermosa, Manhattan and redondo beach and then you can even continue on up to the hills of palos verdes which are these giant cliffs overlooking the pacific the entire way you're pretty much along the ocean and so you've got the beach on one side the city on the other there is one little detour through the area of marina del rey but you're going around a marina so that's nice too i will also say about santa monica it's terrific for kids you mentioned the pier i had my niece and nephew who are seven and five visiting just a few months ago i got to tell you, I think the pier was their favorite thing. Hmm. It's this very old-fashioned amusement park on the pier where you've got a tame little roller coaster. You've got a beautiful, environmentally friendly Ferris wheel with LED lights that create (laughs) a beautiful light show at night. And then the bumper cars and all these sort of classic uh, pirate ship kind of rides. It's a delightful
0: people-watching scene, too.
7: Absolutely. A couple other places to mention in Santa Monica, there's the Third Street Promenade, which is this little shopping area with lots of street performers usually during the day Uh and about 22 movie screens right in the vicinity. So it's always busy with people coming to the movies. Uh, There's also an area called Main Street, which is a little more homegrown. You've got uh, sort of basic, uh, very simple, fun coffee shops. But everything is really nicely put together, and I think you'll enjoy that.
0: And one thing, I I was just down in San Diego and in La Jolla. They've got this wonderful little wall where the seals hang out.
7: The That's lions. right. There's a seal colony right over there, yes. And then you've got this uh,
0: local battle going on. Is it for the children, the human children, or is it for the sea lions?
7: Well, the interesting thing is it's called Children's Beach, and so uh, you know, is it for the children? Is it for the sea lions? Boy, I'll let them fight that out down there. I'm not going to go there.
0: I think uh, <laughs> if possession is nine-tenths of the law, it's clearly for the seals because they're laying there and you're not going to get rid of them. <laughs> hey, it's been That's a right. joy talking to you, Andy. It's such a wonderful area, Southern California. want to remind people Andrew Bender's book is uh, The Lonely Planet Guide to Los Angeles in Southern California. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And, Andy, thanks for joining us.
7: Thank you so much, Rick. Welcome to the Hotel
5: category.
2: Such a
3: place. Such a place. Such a place.
0: Here at Travel with Rick Steves, we think of our listeners as travel partners and offer lots of ways to participate. The radio section of the ricksteves.com website has message boards for you to continue today's discussion online. And if you're feeling creative, send us a poem. Here's some original haiku we thought you'd enjoy from some of our traveling listeners.
6: Sally Tierney of Burien, Washington, emails us to say she believes in enjoying your own neighborhood as much as traveling to faraway places. She sent us a collection of haiku about her commute on Interstate 90 in the Seattle area. Rain-hued car rides into the blind boiling storm, lights off, tires singing. And she writes us these impressions of the Cascade Mountains. Swath of stars beneath the cloud-kissed tree line wink off as dawn lights North Bend. And over the wide calm moments before dawn, flurries are geese on the wind. Kevin Nguyen from Orange County, California, writes us to say he considers Seattle his home away from home. He wrote this haiku in honor of the Pacific Northwest. Pines in sun and mist, centuries in rank and file stand, beauty guards my peace. Mm -hmm. And Diane Yale Peabody of Amherst, Ohio, visits the Northwest often. It's where her son and his wife now live. She sends us this tribute to the region. Land of rain and snow, from mountain to sea, green upon green upon green. Send us an original haiku from your travels, or a short essay bragging about where you live. Links are in the radio section of ricksteves.com.
4: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. That's where you can send us your original travel haiku or a short essay about where you live and sign up to be notified of our next recording sessions for the show. We get production and technical assistance from Sarah McCormick, Gretchen Strauch, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Craig Anderson at Oregon State University and to Bob Carlson at KCRW in Santa Monica for their studio help today. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves.
7: Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.